Hello and welcome to the Music to My Ears podcast, brought to you by BBC Music Magazine, the world's best-selling classical music monthly. This week we're speaking to composer Sally Beamish about the music that shaped who she is today, as well as the music that's keeping her company during lockdown. Sally Beamish started her musical life as a viola player, something she's continued throughout her composing career. Until fairly recently, she was based in Scotland, a country whose rich folk tradition has had a major impact on her work. Her work spans many forms, from ballet to opera, and is renowned for its diverse influences, rich textures and timeless quality. Sally spoke to our editorial assistant, Freya Parr, during lockdown from her home in Brighton, where she lives with husband and collaborator, the writer Peter Thompson. Well, hello, Sally, and thank you for joining Hi. us. I'm a little disappointed to not be recording this in your lovely house in Brighton, as initially planned, but hopefully, <laughs> thanks to the joys of the internet, the listeners shouldn't notice the difference. Um, so this is all a podcast all about the music that you love um, and you listen to on a day-to-day basis and throughout your life. So to kick off, because things are slightly different during lockdown, have you found that your listening habits have changed at all while stuck inside the house? I think, yes, I think I've been listening more. I've been listening a lot to, to sort of live um, living room performances oh, by nice. friends. And um, yes, I had very mixed feelings about that at first. You know, that I, it made me feel terribly guilty that I wasn't doing um, Bach suites and things on my viola. And um, I didn't really feel up to it. But um, it, this whole thing does make you think very very carefully about about motivation for performing and of course if you're if you're a performer then you want to communicate and so to put something up online is about wanting to share something that you've discovered a piece of music that you've discovered and love and and um it's about having that interaction with an audience and I, I think that's a very difficult thing for for performers to sort of switch over um from from the concert hall audience and that buzz that you get and just playing into a into a screen or whatever um in in your own home it's it's a very different dynamic but i i think it's it's something that that has potential as well possibly and and also um i recently uh, did make a, a a recording of a viola duo of mine with Sophie Renshaw um, and it made me realise how much potential there is for for visual um, input you know so so that you could record a piece of music and you could actually make a film around it and um, express the music and make the music um, uh, more approachable because there would be something visual to connect to it like a pop video and often often with a a new song that it's the visual side that that grabs people first and then they kind of get hooked on the whole thing and um this is something that that could be a real way forward for classical music i think to put up short pieces with um a, a beautifully crafted video which which would include footage of the performer but mm. also perhaps um something that's related to the piece so some something to do with the inspiration behind the piece, just to help the audience through it, because I, I think it's very difficult taking in a piece of new music on one hearing, and that's always the problem in a concert hall. You only get one go at it. But if something's online, you can revisit, you can 
you can rewind and revisit a bit like turning back a few pages in a novel because you realize you've missed something mm. so you do think it's kind of an I guess the internet is kind of considered to be the great equalizer do you think there's something in that accessibility that might lead new audiences to music by yourself or by other new composers uh, certainly I've I've been discovering music I hadn't heard before and um looking for inspiration for, for my own work because I, I find it quite difficult to listen to music not in the concert hall. I, I love going to concerts and I can take in a piece of music much better if I'm, if I'm actually there. So it's learning to expand my, my concentration expectations <laughs> and not keep scrolling on to the next thing. I think that's the biggest challenge. And... Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose it must be a bit the same if you're writing radio drama or something, as opposed to a theatre where you've got your captive audience. Yeah. But in radio drama, people, if they get bored, they'll just change channel. Mm. So you really have to, to grab people. I once had a piece performed in a jazz festival um, in, a, in a marquee where people were just wandering in and out. And so if... If people weren't kind of grabbed by the music, they would just, they would just move on. So yeah. it's a very good test of of how you're how you're really constructing something. Although, of course, you don't want to write something that's you know going to grab people immediately. And um, I think most most concert music requires a bit of work from from the audience, just as a radio play requires a bit of work from the audience. Mm. So you think there's kind of more discipline needed from the audience online as opposed to in the concert hall and have you been trying to get more disciplined in that respect <laughs> in my listening yeah um, yes I think so it's far too tempting to move yeah. on to the next thing and that's where I think video could really help you know that um, not just looking at someone playing in their bedroom or, or whatever but but actually if, if something could be mixed afterwards with some footage that means something to the performer or to the composer, if the composer's living, um, some, something that's relevant, that really engages you. And also, and there's such opportunity for composers to, to talk about their music and to discuss with the performer and all those processes that, that are often quite sort of hidden. Mm. Um, you often get a pre-concert talk uh, before a performance of a new work, but not all the audience go to it. Mm. I always think it's much better if you can just to persuade the orchestra to let you come on stage and actually talk when everyone's there who's going to hear the piece. And then you can you've got the orchestra there as well, and you can sort of you can even have um, you can have examples of of what they're going to hear. You can play some of the main themes, and um, so I, I think yeah, I think the online thing could be incredibly exciting, uh, particularly for, for contemporary classical music. Mm. Which of the stream, the kind of live streams or live concerts online have you particularly enjoyed? Well, the London Sinfonietta is, is doing a, a regular live um, thing on, on Wednesdays with, with uh, pieces of new, new music and um, the, uh, the London Mozart players, which... Um, I was involved in in recording this uh, viola duet with Sophie. Mm. They're um, inviting their members each to choose a piece to to play, and then they're presenting it and with an interview as well. So that there's some yeah. chat, and um, I think they call it Sofa Sundays. 
And um, people have said that they find that the chat is actually very engaging and it does lead you into the music. So you, you're getting a bit of extra background there and, and a bit of help with a, a new piece of music that you might not have heard before. Mm, it's, that must be a great thing for kind of contemporary composers to be able to have a platform in which to engage with audiences and explain a little bit more about their work. I know Fenella Humphreys, the violinist, has been doing a lot of new music on her, I think, YouTube or Facebook. And she's been doing like a little talk before each one and explaining yes. the piece, to, which is great because actually sometimes it can be a bit intimidating to those who don't know so much about it. It's lovely to have yes, that kind of connection. It, it, I think it's very engaging the way she introduces the music from a very personal point of view. So she's talking about her own reaction to it, often talking about um, how it feels to play that piece. And um, I think that's very inclusive. It's it's a lovely thing to do. Also, the Red Note Ensemble in Scotland, they're based in oh, yeah. Scotland, they're doing a regular version of what they call their noisy nights, which is when they invite people to send in scores for a, a set combination. Well, at the moment, they're, they're inviting people just to send in solo pieces mm. and each of the main players are, are performing those solo pieces. And it's so lovely when you watch it coming out because you get the live comments coming oh, in. Yeah, so wow. people really... So you're almost hearing people's thoughts as they listen. Mm. And that's something that you can't do in a concert hall. I mean, it, it, you often feel that you can't even sort of exchange a glance with your neighbour. You're sort of frozen <laughs> to the spot. And... <laughs> that's so true. You can now chat through the whole thing and not have anyone yeah. turn around and tell you off. <laughs> Fabulous. Right. So we will go to our first question on the agenda, which kind of will take you back to your initial interaction with music generally. So what was the first piece of music you ever fell in love with? Well, I'm going to say it was uh, Malcolm Arnold's Tam O'Shanter Overture. And it was only years later that I realised what a profound effect that had on me when I started writing for orchestra, which wasn't until I was in my 30s, mm. um, and was also by then living in Scotland. And of course, Tam O'Shanter is a wonderful evocation of a Robert Burns' poem. Uh, it, I used to find it absolutely terrifying when I was sort of six or seven. And the orchestration is just impeccable. It's perfect. You know, the way he balances the orchestra, the way he achieves really unexpected effects, but they always work. You can always hear everything. I mean, the main theme at the beginning is in, introduced by two bassoons. And in fact, I was always making mistakes with bassoons when I started writing for orchestra, because I didn't realise that you can't just have a bassoon solo and everyone else playing. I love the sound of bassoons. And I realise now it probably goes back to that piece. Yeah. <laughs> and you have to be and just looking at the score of Tamashanta, you can see how incredibly careful he was to give those bassoons the, the, the amount of, of space, oral space, so that they could be heard really clearly mm. and all the way through the score it's it's absolutely stunning the way he balances the orchestra he was an absolute master of orchestration and I think he's really affected the way I, I write in a very unconscious way I mean I, I never studied composition but I don't think Malcolm Arnold would ever have been set as a, as a, a sort of um, a, a sort of beacon of of um authority on orchestration you you would look at perhaps Debussy well Ravel in particular and uh, you know all the 
obvious masters. But Malcolm Arnold, I think partly because he wrote for film as well, and so he was thinking very much of the emotional impact of every note that he wrote. Very Mm. economical. like his uh this particular piece is one that you've kind of learnt to love even more as you've kind of understood the various elements of the orchestration but when did you first hear it when did you first come across it well I was very lucky because when I was a little girl my father worked for Philips record company and because he was musical they would give him records to bring home and just listen through and check um to make sure everything was right. And uh, they were all in brown paper sleeves. And so we had this massive collection of sort of random things and quite a lot of what was then contemporary music. There was Walton, the Walton Viola Concerto, I remember hearing, and um, and the Malcolm Arnold, obviously. And um, so that became the soundtrack of, of my childhood in a way. And I still discover things that I've copied from, for instance, Ravel, La Valse. I heard that when I was a child. I don't think I, I, I would have known what it was called. There were no labels on these records, really. <laughs> no, no sleeves to sort of pour over while you were listening. Um, and I, I realised I'd stolen bits of, of that Ravel in, in, uh, in a piece that I wrote in the 80s. And at the time, I thought, I'm sure I've heard this somewhere. What is it? <laughs> you know, I, I kind of stole a little fragment and, and then years later heard La Valse and thought, oh, yeah, that's what it was. You know, so um, it, it's amazing how, how deep these things go, particularly when you're very young. Mm. So you kind of always had records around the house then that you listened to? Yes, I was always listening to music. And then and then later when I when I started playing in youth orchestras, um, those pieces became so emotionally um, poignant to me mm. because they were to do with that excitement, you know, of being with other young people and um, falling in love. And um, you know, Vorjak New World Symphony. I mean, the the sensation of sitting in the viola section and trying to play, <laughs> trying to play that. <laughs> Um, it was just so exciting. So those pieces became very, very important. And then going to music college as a violinist initially and listening to all the the Heifetz recordings and comparing um, different recordings of, of all those wonderful Wieniawski and Chrysler pieces and which violinist did you like best? You know, listening for hours and comparing in minute detail all the different performers. And sadly, that's something that kind of fell off when I when I started actually playing professionally. Um, I suppose I was surrounded by music because I was playing music, but I I stopped listening to records, CDs, and I've never listened to music on the radio really as a regular thing because you're so likely to be interrupted. So, and I, I find it very difficult not to give my full attention to a piece of music. So. It, you know, if the phone rings or someone comes and talks to you, it's kind of irritating, and then, <laughs> and then you you sort of end up looking a, a little bit kind of um, 
uh, affected by by saying I'm, I'm terribly sorry I'm listening to it, whatever on on the radio. <laughs> and I think music on the radio tends to become background a little bit, mm. and noticeably. Um, they tend to be shorter spans on the radio than they used to be. So you'll get a single movement of something. Um, I don't think that's a bad thing at all. I mean, concerts used to be like that in mm, 100 years true. ago. So, yeah, I don't think it's a bad thing. But it's it's still much more difficult to achieve that concentration. And, of course, now trying to listen to music um, because someone's put something up on Facebook or, or whatever, is it's really hard to get that level of engagement. So you don't really enjoy passive listening at all then? You kind of want to be properly nestled in with a piece of music and know that you have uninterrupted space. Yes, I suppose, yes, I suppose it's passive listening. That's really interesting because I think listening is always active mm. because you, you have to work quite hard. You have to, you have to engage and, and use your imagination and um, a lot of memories involved because... Um, in order to really to take in a piece of music, you have to kind of um, remember the themes as you go on, and so that you recognise them again. And um, and of course, the more you hear a piece of music, the the more it will get under your skin. And so that's that's always a problem for for new um, new classical music, new concert mm. music, that the there isn't often the opportunity to hear something a second time. Do you tend to listen to anything at home? Um, I've started listening more um, in lockdown, um, doing sort of daily Pilates. Oh, nice. um, (laughs) And putting something on then. And I find I can multitask then. And going through our joint vast uh, CD and and record collection quite randomly, just sort of picking something out and and putting it on for for an hour, that has been extraordinary and discovering uh, the rock music that was part of my husband's um, teenage years, you know, Cream and Steely Dan and and um, then playing him the things that, that I loved as well. Which, um, it's, it's quite interesting uh, hearing, hearing some of those pieces again for me and also very interesting hearing the things that, that, that really meant a lot to him Mm. and which completely passed me by coming from a very (laughs) classical (laughs) classical family he can't believe that you know I hadn't heard Jimi Hendrix and (laughs) and all these people um and it's so important to get those layers of of um the the richness of of what was going on in in the 70s and 80s is just so exciting so you're kind of expanding your musical horizons now (laughs) Yes, a bit belatedly, (laughs) (laughs) trying to catch up. (laughs) So will you find yourself listening back to Malcolm Arnold then in lockdown and revisiting some of those pieces from your childhood? Yes, and it it really brought it back to me. Um, Something like the Rachmaninoff second suite for two pianos. Gosh, I I loved that. I loved that piece. And... um, and it had just the same effect, rediscovering it, in a battered old LP, you know. Mm. Um, the excitement of hearing two pianos playing at the same time, which is something that you don't often hear. Mm. Does your 
obviously when you mentioned when you listened when you were younger you had kind of no context not even necessarily knowing what the piece was how how does your approach to music change now that you're a composer and have been for many years is there a different do you come come at it with a different approach from when I was a child well I was always a composer Mm. And I was always stealing, as most composers do. <laughs> so I don't think my approach has changed very much. Um, I always, I was a child who always wanted to do everything myself. So um, I was quite indignant when I was expected to play um, other people's music. Uh, when I was just starting the piano, I, I, I wrote my own manual to teach myself the piano. Because <laughs> I, I was composing first and then playing. Um, so yes, I always wanted to, I always wanted to try something myself. So for instance, hearing, um, Peter Grimes when my mother was playing in, in the pit in, in Sadler's Wells and I went to a rehearsal and I came home and immediately wanted to write storm music of my own. And, uh, I didn't, I don't think I had much sense of, of how far I had to go before <laughs> I could really master something like that but I just kept doing it uh, because I loved it and because I was fascinated at that that stage then oh about eight I should think um I started I started writing when I was about four and um kept it fairly simple mainly songs song settings and um little piano pieces and things that were within my grasp and then Mm. I I branched out um as I got older and also, interestingly, I, I started off in a sort of plain chant, sort of medieval style, and moved through the ages. And so I reached Mendelssohn at about 17. You know? <laughs> and my mother kept saying to me, why can't you write something original? Shouldn't you be writing something original? And actually, I think it's really important not to be original. It's really important to copy because that's how you learn. And I, I think I'm returning to that. I'm returning to, you know, because when you're starting out as a sort of career, you know, you're you're so conscious about what, what the audience are going to think, what your contemporaries are going to think, what the players are going to think, what the critics are going to think. And um, it's easy to, to lose a sense of what you actually want to say. And I think as I've got older, I've shaken off that that dreadful fear that, that hung around us in, in, in the 70s, that, that you mustn't be tonal, you know, you mustn't, mm. you, um, that everything was this sort of new complexity and um, you would be laughed at if you, if, if you wrote a, a sequence of, of harmonies <laughs> or a melody, heaven forbid. And uh, I'm, I'm allowing myself to do that now. Did you feel the pressure then? Did you cave to that pressure and try and write very atonal music for a while? I think I... I don't think it was an artificial thing, really. I think I, I think I tried to express myself within that idiom, but I also always hung on to my tonal roots, mm. uh, uh, quite literally. I mean, you know, I... I, um, I tried to take something from what was going on, and I, I was very interested in what was going on. I was playing a lot of contemporary music in the 80s on the viola, um, Boulez and um, Berio and um, and composers like Nussen and Maxwell Davis, who who I got to know quite well and, and who, who really helped me. But I was, I was fascinated by the colours that they were creating. So um, 
I wanted to ha- to have all of that as well, um, mm. but I also wanted to hang on to my own. Um, I I always felt that that tonality was something that is in all of us, is in our, in our ears somehow, and it's something that that you can use as an expectation. You can break the expectation, but if you're conscious of of what the audience is is kind of expecting, then then you can surprise them. Mm. And if you're if they don't know what on earth is coming next, then they get bored. If there's too much new stuff coming all the time. So you use the conventions as something to work for you and then you work with those and break out of them or or manipulate them a little bit. Um, but I think then you keep your your listeners with you Mm. so you think that listeners need that kind of stability sometimes to plant themselves and know slightly where it's going in order to be able to act actively listen I suppose I think so I think you 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 need to be interested in where it's going Mm. um just as in drama you know you you really do want to know who everyone is and and be interested in their in their journey and what's going to happen to them so um, I think the same applies to music in a way that um, it's it's so much more interesting when you can recognise something, a fragment, that is being changed or being played in different ways. Or um, As soon as you recognise something, you become interested. And repetition is not boring. It's, it's the opposite. <laughs> it's... Repetition is interesting. <laughs> someone someone said to me, if it's nice, do it twice. And I think that was very good I think that was very good advice. Good mantra to live by. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what we need. I think we need we need to know what's going on in, in order to remain engaged. If you're enjoying the music so far, do head to this episode's Spotify playlist where you can find complete performances of all the pieces discussed, as well as some bonus tracks. You'll find the link in the podcast description. Okay, so that leads on nicely to our second question, uh, which is what the what's the best concert you've ever been to? Obviously not recently. <laughs> <laughs> well, I you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't know where to start really, but um one of the uh the last concerts I went to before the lockdown was um, to hear Catherine Finch, harpist, playing with Cimarron, which is a Colombian uh, folk group. And I was absolutely bowled over by it. I've worked a lot myself with Scottish um, traditional musicians and um, I love combining classical sounds with with the folk sounds. Uh, but this was a, a revelation. Um, hearing the the variety of sounds, actually, the, the different instruments, the there is also a harp, a Colombian harp, and um the different plucked instruments like Churango and various guitars, and the percussion was just fantastic. So uh, maracas and um, cajon, which is like the box that you, you sit on and you can make 
um, different sounds from that. And in fact, Catherine says that she's she's um, now got a cajon of her own, which she sits on to play the harp. So she can also she can combine <laughs> the percussion on her harp, which harpists use quite often playing um, with their hands on the soundboard. But she's also got her box underneath, so she's she can really explore different sounds. Actually, I was so completely engaged by it, and they danced as well on stage, and that's. Um, that's something that <laughs> it doesn't happen uh, very often in the concert hall, actually seeing the musicians dancing. And that made me think about uh, expressing music through through dance. Uh, I think um, some of the pieces I've enjoyed writing most have been for dance. I've just quite recently written two full-length ballets and just seeing the music coming to life through through the bodies of the dancers is quite extraordinary. I think that's another thing that, that could be really exciting um, online, you know, to see music expressed through dance. So to see this happening on stage with these amazing Colombian musicians who who all danced at some point and they would they would jump up onto their boxes that they were using for percussion and, and dance on top of them and um a lot of hand cl- clapping and body percussion as well mm. um and throwing of hats in the air and it was just it was an absolute feast for the senses yeah. it was wonderful <laughs> Would you ever be tempted to explore the kind of sound worlds of Colombia in in your compositions? Yes, certainly. I mean, I would love to use some of the percussion in particular, but some of the instruments are similar to orchestral instruments, but the techniques are so different. And you can't assume that uh, a player from one discipline is going to be able to replicate what a player from another discipline does I mean like for instance if you take a classical saxophone player they're not necessarily going to be able to play jazz mm. so um, one always has to work with with what one has in, in the most positive way I mean you always work to the strengths of your performers but you can't expect them not to not to be what they are mm. to be something else like you, you can't expect an opera singer to sing um uh, a Beyonce song, for instance. <laughs> You'd like to hear it, though, wouldn't you? <laughs> it would be fun. It would be fun. But what's the piece that you couldn't live without? Uh, what did I say? You said Bartok <laughs> string quartets, which is slightly cheating because there are six of them, but I appreciate that you're <laughs> slightly pushing it. <laughs> yeah, I, the Bartok string quartets are, are kind of my, my go-to thing when I'm stuck um, because he... He had such simplicity and economy of expression. He was also work, working very much um, f- kind of using a, f- a, a folk basis for a lot of his music, but taking it somewhere else. And I, I find that very exciting. Um, and just so incredibly 
um, unexpected sometimes and the, uh, the original way that he uses the four stringed instruments and the way he he makes a sound with the string quartet that had never been heard before and which is still fresh every time I mean it's amazing to think how long ago those pieces were written now but they're still so contemporary and so yeah um unexpected and and um full of full of excitement full of full of color um there's always something in there that that gets me going again when <laughs> when I can't think of what I want to do next you know it's just it it just always gives me that kind of inner nudge to mm. listen to Bartok string quartets <laughs> You mentioned it earlier as well that you'd you've written a little bit combining Scottish trad and folk music in your work. Could you tell me a little bit more about that and what your processes has been of combining the two worlds? Well, uh, before I moved to Scotland in 1990, I had not realised how incredibly present the, the Scottish traditional culture is in everyday life, and that's something that you don't really experience. Um, certainly not in 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 London um I wasn't aware of uh, well as you know I, the, the whole of the pop and rock world passed me by anyway so <laughs> that was my own fault but um there isn't so much a folk tradition but um in Scotland you're just aware of it all the time and again it's because of dance because there's this um you know the weekly Cayley in the village hall and everyone being involved and um also bagpipe music which is is there at uh, many sort of events you know the bagpipes are there the the clarsach the scottish harp is there um these were all sounds which i kind of vaguely knew about but i hadn't realized the emotional impact they could have um my first symphony was inspired by pibroch which is the variation form of the scottish highland bagpipes um so I'd used lots of ideas which had had been had really freed up my musical language, but the piece I wrote um, is called Sea Vegas, Sea Vegas, which means um, seafarers, and it's about the stretch of of water between Dundee and Shetland, which is where the two musicians live, and it's a very dangerous stretch of water, and there's a lot of um, tragedy attached to to that lost boats and um but also it's extremely beautiful of course and um so that that is all within within the music but what I did was to leave a lot of space for the Scottish musicians to to improvise so Chris and Katrina are both completely at home with improvising. Did you take do you consider Bartok because because of his involvement with um obviously combining a folk and traditional classical, do you think of him as a kind of influence? Do you uh, do you go to his music as inspiration for yours? Yes, very much so, very mm. much so. And, and, and he did it so successfully so that um, 
I mean, for instance, if you if you hear the Norwegian folk tunes as as interpreted by Grieg in his piano pieces, they're very much pieces of classical music. He's using the tunes. Beethoven did it as well with Scottish tunes as well. And but but it became they they just lifted it into the classical genre. Mm. But what I find exciting about Bartok is that he didn't quite do that. There's still a rawness which comes from the folk tradition, and that is still there in the music. Hmm. So if you had to pick one of <laughs> one of his six <laughs> string quartets, which would it be? Oh, my goodness. I think number six, probably. You think? <laughs> he got better with time. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you pick that one then? Oh, I love the way he uses the viola. Yeah. Uh, I suppose, yeah, I'm always drawn to... to um, yeah, to... to really special writing for viola I, th- I think that's, that always draws me in and it doesn't happen as often as you'd like I'm sure as a viola player <laughs> <laughs> happens more and more I think and uh, it the does. viola yeah I think the viola has has such an interesting sound because it's it's somehow a flawed instrument it it, it because the viola can't be made to perfect proportions um as the violin and the cello can be the viola actually should be much bigger than it is Mm-hmm. But um, for the convenience of being able to play it like a violin, it has to be smaller than that. And so you get you get violas of wildly different sizes. It's always a compromise. You get huge violas and little violas, and you get violas with very, very different sounds. So some of them are, are very rich at the bottom and sound more like cellos. Some of them are more trebly. Um, and... In a way, I, I I think the viola is like a human voice because it it's it it has got a very human flawed quality about it and so much personality and I don't know I mean there's this ongoing discussion about why so many composers are viola players I think there are lots of reasons for that um, but I think I think one of them is that the viola is right in the centre of everything mm. and so um, if you're a viola player you're you're really listening to everything that's going on around you, but maybe that's one of the things. But maybe it's also the voice itself that is so very expressive. Mm. Who are some other composers that you really enjoy the way they work with the viola as a viola player yourself? Well, I love I love the Walton Concerto. I I just think it's there's something so poignant about it, and it's also very very simply written. Britain as well, Lacrimé, this is piece Lacrimé, where, where he's really exploring the different colours that, that a viola can make. And there is something plaintive about the viola. There are very few um, really kind of... Um, yeah, the viola doesn't do cheerful quite so well, but I mean, it can <laughs> do. But, but composers tend to latch on to that plaintive quality, I think. Mm. It has the mournful side of it that... Yeah, it's probably slightly. right that that human yeah. voice element the way it does sit perfectly in the middle it can really it has a lot more emotional range than some other instruments there's a, there's always a sort of catch in the voice you know just like a little emotional tug mm. in the voice of the viola lovely fab and moving on to our final question uh, what is your current musical obsession i've been thinking a lot about drama in music about narrative and um, I always have done. An awful lot of my music is based on a narrative. But um, I had always wanted to write the score for a ballet because it seemed to me that was the perfect 
way of telling a story through music without having to worry about voices and whether you could hear the words or not and all that that happens in opera is <laughs> everyone says you could hear the words and I don't think you ever can because it's just so it's so difficult to take them in it's not that the singers aren't fantastically good with their articulation but actually to take in the the words and the music at the same time is really difficult to do but with ballet it is this thing of expressing through the through the body which which seems to be a, a more natural marriage somehow with with the music and um i i was finally commissioned to write a, a ballet in 2016 um i did the score for for the tempest for david bintley and birmingham royal ballet and the process of writing it was just so rewarding inspiring um it led me to to places where i i, I couldn't have gone on my own it was it, it really um it really made me stretch myself and my my ability. And we had these regular Skype meetings each time I was about to write the next scene. We would talk about the scene, we would talk about the characters, what the trajectory was of those characters, what was um, what we wanted to achieve with the scene. He David would often talk about, um, uh, well, do you want applause or not? Do you want them to clap? <laughs> And it was, and that was such such a new thing for me because you know that it, it that's the only form of classical music where where people can actually clap while the music's happening, you know, yeah, and, uh, so or, or they might clap at the end of a number. It doesn't happen in opera anymore. And uh, I thought, oh, this is this is amazing. <laughs> so I can I can actually um, decide whether there's going to be a moment of applause there or, or not. And also expressing comedy through music. So um, I very often wouldn't give him long enough to make that comedy moment really tell so that the audience would get it. So it taught me a lot about pacing and and about that that thing between between the performance and and the audience that the audience have to be given time to to absorb something. And when when we reached the end of the process I felt completely bereft because I'd lost my my dramaturg, you know, and I realized I I kind of needed that um uh but um it was it, it was an amazing thing because around that time i i i met peter who's a playwright and um we have started um almost a similar process where he will often give me a narrative for a piece of music and even though there are no words I can follow that narrative and and I can write to it as if I'm mm. writing a dance score. And it is something that I've always done, but but actually to work closely with someone in that way has been really amazing. And and so, you know, it went from working with a choreographer to, to working with a dramaturg on my concert music. And I think that's brought out something further in the concert music that um, is really related to theatre. So you you quite like working within a kind of strict narrative framework. Then you like having uh, a narrative to follow. Um, I like. Uh, I very often use extra musical inspiration. So it might be a painting, might be a poem, not necessarily a narrative. Mm. Um, it might just yeah, it might just be an image that I'm writing to. But um, that that's always been what what sets me off right mm. from the very beginning um and 
what I really love is collaboration. So it's working with other artists and whether it's a choreographer or um, or a performer, a concerto soloist. Uh, most of my concertos were written for, for performers who had very clear ideas about what they wanted. And mm. that's very exciting. And especially if you if you've known their playing for a long time and, and you can work to their strengths and um I I love that process. I love the process of the of the music being being taken by the performer and and expressed and and that's that's like the sort of um that's the fifty percent of, of the music, yeah. you know. I mean it's um and very often they'll do something that you you just didn't expect and that that's very exciting as well mm. and often makes its way back into the score I sort of think well gosh I'd like every performer to do it that way so I write it in um I love that to and fro are you working on anything composition wise at the moment I'm about to start a concerto for um Janine Janssen and Martin Thrust so that's violin and clarinet yeah um and I think that will come from from a place of, of folk music, um, the, the folk music of the north, uh, of Scotland, of Sweden, of uh, the Netherlands. And, um, yeah, I, I want to find a kind of universality of that, of, of their... They're both, they're both very charismatic players and... Mm. Um, I, I think that's something I want to tap into. I'm, I'm just about to start thinking about that piece, so that'll be that's a good, be my main a good lockdown project. Yes, that's <laughs> my main lockdown project. But I've also written some short pieces for mm. various projects. I, I wrote um, a piece uh, for an organisation called Soundworld, who is supporting performers during. I mean, it's a devastating time for performers. Yeah. Um, so they asked several composers to write um, short pieces. So I've I've written a short piece called April for saxophone, vibraphone, and piano, and I was given that lineup of instruments, um, and then heard that uh, my friend Branford Marsalis' father, Ellis Marsalis, had yeah. died in April, and. Um, it was just extraordinary that I there I was with this combination of instruments to write for, and it just seemed so appropriate. It's Alice Marsalis was the most incredible educator and musician, pianist, um, and yeah, that that seemed like a very natural response to what had mm. happened. It was it just really brought brought it home to me how how terrifying this whole this whole thing is. So. Mm. Yeah, so they'll be recording that remotely and putting mm-hmm. it up online quite soon. Well, Sally, that's perfect. Thank you so much. That's a really great series of selections. So thank you. OK, <laughs> thank you. It's been fun talking to you. That was composer Sally Beamish on the music that's defined her life. We do hope you enjoyed this podcast from the team at BBC Music Magazine. Tune in next week and we'll be speaking to another musician about their musical loves. And please do subscribe to this podcast and rate and review it wherever you've been listening. If you want to find out more about BBC Music Magazine, 
We're available in print and various digital formats. Or you can visit our website, classical-music.com, where you can read all about the latest musical happenings, read thousands of reviews, and a good deal more. Thank you to Acast for hosting this podcast, and to our producers, Ben Newett and Jack Bateman. Bateman.